our French watering place. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by L. D. Hamilton. Charles Dickens' 200th Anniversary Collection, Volume 4. Our French Watering Place by Charles Dickens. Having earned by many years of fidelity the right to be sometimes inconstant to our English watering place, we have dallied for two or three seasons with a French watering place, once solely known to us as a town with a very long street, beginning with an abattoir and ending with a steamboat, which it seemed our fate to behold only at daybreak on winter mornings when, in the days before Continental Railroads, just sufficiently awake to know that we were most uncomfortably asleep. It was our destiny always to clatter through it, in the coup of the diligence from Paris, with a sea of mud behind us and a sea of tumbling waves before. In relation to which latter monster, our mind's eye now recalls a worthy Frenchman in a sealskin cap with a braided hood over it, once our travelling companion in the coup aforesaid, who, waking up with a pale and crumpled visage, and looking ruefully out at the grim row of breakers enjoying themselves fanatically on an instrument of torture called the bar, inquired of us whether we were ever sick at sea, both to prepare his mind for the abject creature we were presently to become, and also to afford him consolation, we replied, Sir, your servant is always sick when it is possible to be so. He returned, altogether uncheered by the bright example, Ah, heaven, but I am always sick, even when it is impossible to be so. The means of communication between the French capital and our French watering place are wholly changed since those days, but the channel remains unbridged as yet, and the old floundering and knocking about go on there. It must be confessed that saving in reasonable and therefore rare sea weather, the act of arrival at our French watering place from England is difficult to be achieved with dignity. Several little circumstances combine to render the visitor an object of humiliation. In the first place, the steamer no sooner touches the port than all the passengers fall into captivity, being boarded by an overpowering force of custom-house officers and marched into a gloomy dungeon. In the second place, the road to this dungeon is fenced off with ropes breast-high and outside those ropes all the English in the place who have lately been seasick and are now well, assemble in their best clothes to enjoy the degradation of their dilapidated fellow-creatures. Oh, my gracious! How ill this one has been! Here's a damp one coming next. Here's a pale one. Oh, ain't he green in the face, this next one? Even we ourselves, not deficient in natural dignity, have a lively remembrance of staggering up this detested lane one September day in a gale of wind, when we were received like an irresistible comic actor, 
with a burst of laughter and applause, occasioned by the extreme imbecility of our legs. We were coming to the third place. In the third place, the captives, being shut up in the gloomy dungeon, are strained, two or three at a time, into an inner cell, to be examined as to passports, and across the doorway of communication stands a military creature making a bar of his arm. Two ideas are generally present to the British mind during these ceremonies. First, that it is necessary to make for the cell with violent struggles, as if it were a lifeboat and the dungeon a ship going down. Secondly, that the military creature's arm is a national affront, which the government at home ought instantly to take up. The British mind and body, becoming heated by these fantasies, delirious answers are made to inquiries, and extravagant actions performed. Thus, Johnson persists in giving Johnson as his baptismal name, and substituting for his ancestral designation the national damn neither can he by any means be brought to recognize the distinction between a portmanteau key and a passport but will obstinately persevere in tendering the one when asked for the other this brings him to the fourth place in a state of mere idiocy and when he is in the fourth place cast out at a little door into a howling wilderness of touters he becomes a lunatic with wild eyes and floating hair until rescued and soothed if friendless and unrescued he is generally put into a railway omnibus and taken to paris but our french watering-place when it is once got into is a very enjoyable place it has a varied and beautiful country around it, and many characteristic and agreeable things within it. To be sure, it might have fewer bad smells and less decaying refuse, and it might be better drained, and much cleaner in many places, and therefore infinitely more healthy. Still, it is a bright, airy, pleasant, cheerful town and if you were to walk down either of its three well-paved main streets towards five o'clock in the afternoon when delicate odors of cookery fill the air and its hotel windows it is full of hotels give glimpses of long tables set out for dinner and made to look sumptuous by the aid of napkins folded fanwise you would rightly judge it to be an uncommonly good town to eat and drink in we have an old walled town, rich in cool public wells of water, on the top of a hill within and above the present business town, and if it were some hundreds of miles further from England, instead of being on a clear day within sight of the grass growing in the crevices of the chalk cliffs of Dover, you would long ago have been bored to death about that town. It is more picturesque and quaint than half the innocent places which tourists, following their leader like sheep, have made impostors of. To say nothing of its houses with grave courtyards, its queer by-corners, and its many-windowed streets, white and quiet in the sunlight, there is an ancient belfry in it 
that would have been in all the annuals and albums, going and gone, these hundred years, if it had but been more expensive to get at. Happily, it has escaped so well, being only in our French watering-place, that you may like it of your own accord in a natural manner, without being required to go into convulsions about it. We regard it as one of the later blessings of our life that Bilkins, the only authority on taste, never took any notice that we can find out of our French watering-place. Bilkins never wrote about it, never pointed out anything to be seen in it, never measured anything in it, always left it alone. For which relief, heaven bless the town and the memory of the immortal Bilkins, likewise. There is a charming walk, arched and shaded by trees, on the old walls that form the four sides of the high town, whence you get glimpses of the streets below, and changing views of the other town and of the river, and of the hills and of the sea. It is made more agreeable and peculiar by some of the solemn houses that are rooted in the deep streets below, bursting into a fresher existence atop, and having doors and windows and even gardens on these ramparts. A child going in at the courtyard gate of one of these houses, climbing up the many stairs, and coming out at the fourth-floor window, might conceive himself another jack, alighting on enchanted ground from another beanstalk. It is a place wonderfully populous in children, English children, with governesses reading novels as they walk down the shady lanes of trees, or nursemaids interchanging gossip on the seats, French children with their smiling bonds in snow-white caps, and themselves, if little boys, in straw headgear like beehives, work baskets, and church hassocks. Three years ago, there were three weazen old men, one bearing a frayed red ribbon in his threadbare buttonhole, always to be found walking together among these children before dinner-time. If they walked for an appetite, they doubtless lived en pension, were contracted for, otherwise their poverty would have made it a rash action. They were stooping, blear-eyed, dull old men, slipshod and shaddy in long-skirted, short-waisted coats and meagre trousers, and yet with a ghost of gentility hovering in their company. They spoke little to each other, and looked as if they might have been politically discontented if they had had vitality enough. Once we overheard Red Ribbon feebly complain to the other two that somebody or something was a robber, and then they all three set their mouths so that they would have ground their teeth if they had had any. The ensuing winter gathered red ribbon unto the great company of faded ribbons, and next year the remaining two were there, getting themselves entangled with hoops and dolls, familiar mysteries to the children, probably in the eyes of most of them harmless creatures who had never been like children, and whom children could never be like. Another winter came, and another old man went, and so, this present year, the last of the triumvirate, left off walking. It was no good now. 
and sat by himself on a little solitary bench, with the hoops and the dolls, as lively as ever, all about him. In the Place d'Armes of this town, a little decayed market is held, which seems to slip through the old gateway like water, and go rippling down the hill, to mingle with the murmuring market in the lower town, and get lost in its movement and bustle. It is very agreeable, on an idle summer morning, to pursue this market stream from the hilltop. It begins dozingly and dully, with a few sacks of corn, starts into a surprising collection of boots and shoes, goes brawling down the hill in a diversified channel of old cordage, old iron, old crockery, old clothes, civil and military, old rags, new cotton goods, flaming prints of saints, little looking-glasses, and incalculable lengths of tape. Dives into a back way, keeping out of sight for a little while, as streams will, or only sparkling for a moment in the shape of a market-drinking shop, and suddenly reappears behind the great church, shooting itself into a bright confusion of white-capped women and blue-bloused men, poultry, vegetables, fruits, flowers, pots, pans, praying chairs, soldiers, country butter, umbrellas, and other sunshades, girl porters waiting to be hired with baskets at their backs, and one weazen old man in a cocked hat, wearing a cuirass of drinking-glasses and carrying on his shoulder a crimson temple fluttering with flags, like a glorified pavier's rammer without the handle, who rings a little bell in all parts of the scene, and cries his cooling drink, Hola! Hola! Hoo! in a shrill, cracked voice that somehow makes itself heard, above all the chaffering and vending hum. Early in the afternoon, the whole course of the stream is dry. The praying chairs are put back in the church, the umbrellas are folded up, the unsold goods are carried away, the stalls and stands disappear, the square is swept, the hackney coaches lounge there to be hired, and on all the country roads, if you walk about as much as we do, you will see the peasant women, always neatly and comfortably dressed, riding home, with the pleasantest saddle furniture of clean milk pails, bright butter kegs, and the like, on the jolliest little donkeys in the world. We have another market in our French watering place, that is to say, a few wooden hutches in the open street down by the port, devoted to fish. Our fishing boats are famous everywhere, and our fishing people, though they love lively colors and taste is neutral, see Bilkins, are among the most picturesque people we ever encountered. They have not only a quarter of their own in the town itself, but they occupy whole villages of their own on the neighboring cliffs, their churches and chapels are their own, they consort with one another, they intermarry among themselves, their customs are their own, and their costume is their own and never changes. As soon as one of their boys can walk, he is provided with a long, bright red nightcap, 
and one of their men would as soon think of going afloat without his head as without that indispensable appendage to it. Then they wear the noblest boots, with the hugest tops, flapping and bulging over anyhow, above which they encase themselves in such wonderful overalls and petticoat trousers, made to all appearance of terry old sails, so additionally stiffened with pitch and salt, that the wearers have a walk of their own, and go straddling and swinging about among the boats and barrels and nets and rigging, a sight to see. Then their younger women, by dint of going down to the sea barefoot, to fling their baskets into the boats as they come in with the tide, and bespeak the first fruits of the hall, with propitiatory promises to love and marry that dear fisherman who shall fill that basket like an angel, have the finest legs ever carved by nature in the brightest mahogany, and they walk like Juno. Their eyes, too, are so lustrous that their long gold earrings turn dull beside those brilliant neighbors. And when they are dressed, what with these beauties and their fine fresh faces and their many petticoats, striped petticoats, red petticoats, blue petticoats, always clean and smart and never too long, and their homemade stockings, mulberry-colored, blue, brown, purple, lilac, which the older women, taking care of the Dutch-looking children, sit in all sorts of places, knitting, 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 from morning to night, and what with their little saucy bright blue jackets, knitted too, and fitting close to their handsome figures, and what with the natural grace with which they wear the commonest cap, or fold the commonest handkerchief round their luxuriant hair, we say, in a word, and out of breath, that taking all these premises into our consideration, it has never been a matter of the least surprise to us that we have never once met in the cornfields, on the dusty roads, by the breezy windmills, on the plots of short sweet grass overhanging the sea, anywhere, a young fisherman and fisherwoman of our French watering-place together, but the arm of that fisherman has invariably been, as a matter of course, and without any absurd attempt to disguise so plain a necessity, round the neck or waist of that fisherwoman. And we have no doubt whatever, standing looking at their uphill streets, house rising above house, and terrace above terrace, and bright garments here and there lying sunning on rough stone parapets, that the pleasant mist on all such objects, caused by their being seen through the brown nets hung across on poles to dry, is, in the eyes of every true young fisherman, a mist of love and beauty, setting off the goddess of his heart. Moreover, it is to be observed that these are an industrious people, and a domestic people, and an honest people. And though we are aware that at the bidding of Bilkins it is our duty to fall down and worship the Neapolitans, we make bold very much to prefer the fishing people of our French watering-place, especially since our last visit to Naples within these twelve months when we found only four conditions of men remaining in the whole city, to wit, 
Lazaroni, priests, spies, and soldiers, and all of them beggars, the paternal government having banished all its subjects except the rascals. But we can never henceforth separate our French watering place from our own landlord of two summers, Monsieur Loyal de Vassure, citizen and town councillor. Permit us to have the pleasure of presenting Monsieur Loyal de Vassure. His own family name is simply Loyal, but as he is married, and as in that part of France a husband always adds to his own name the family name of his wife, he writes himself Loyal de Vassure. He owns a compact little estate of some twenty or thirty acres on a lofty hillside, and on it he has built two country houses, which he lets furnished. They are by many degrees the best houses that are so let near our French watering place. We have had the honor of living in both, and can testify. The entrance hall of the first we inhabited was ornamented with a plan of the estate, presenting it as about twice the size of Ireland, insomuch that when we were yet new to the property, Monsieur Loyal always speaks of it as la propriété. We went three miles straight on end in search of the bridge of Austerlitz, which we afterwards found to be immediately outside the window. The chateau of the old guard, in another part of the grounds, and, according to the plan, about two leagues from the little dining-room, we sought in vain for a week, until, happening one evening to sit upon a bench in the forest, forest in the plan, a few yards from the house-door, we observed at our feet, in the ignominious circumstances of being upside down and greenly rotten, the old guard himself, that is to say, the painted effigy of a member of that distinguished corps, seven feet high, and in the act of carrying arms, who had had the misfortune to be blown down in the previous winter. It will be perceived that Monsieur Loyal is a staunch admirer of the great Napoleon. He is an old soldier himself, captain of the National Guard, with a handsome gold vase on his chimney-piece, presented to him by his company, and his respect for the memory of the illustrious general is enthusiastic. Medallions of him, portraits of him, busts of him, pictures of him, are thickly sprinkled all over the property. During the first month of our occupation, it was our affliction to be constantly knocking down Napoleon. If we touched a shelf in a dark corner, he toppled over with a crash, and every door we opened shook him to the soul. Yet Monsieur Loyal is not a man of mere castles in the air, or, as he would say, in Spain. He has a specially practical, contriving, clever, skillful eye and hand. His houses are delightful. He unites French elegance and English comfort in a happy manner quite his own. He has an extraordinary genius for making tasteful little bedrooms and angles of his roofs, which an Englishman would as soon think of turning to any account as he would think of cultivating the desert. We have ourselves reposed deliciously in an elegant chamber of Monsieur Loyal's construction, 
with our head as nearly in the kitchen chimney-pot as we can conceive it likely for the head of any gentleman, not by profession a sweep to be. And into whatsoever strange nook Monsieur Loyal's genius penetrates, it, in that nook, infallibly constructs a cupboard and a row of pegs. In either of our houses we could have put away the knapsacks and hung up the hats of the whole regiment of guides. Aforetime, Monsieur Loyal was a tradesman in the town. You can transact business with no present tradesman in the town, and give your card chez Monsieur Loyal, but a brighter face shines upon you directly. We doubt if there is, ever was, or ever will be, a man so universally pleasant in the minds of people as Monsieur Loyal is in the minds of the citizens of our French watering-place. They rub their hands and laugh when they speak of him. Ah, but he is such a good child, such a brave boy, such a generous spirit, that Monsieur Loyal. It is the honest truth. Mr. Loyal's nature is the nature of a gentleman. He cultivates his ground with his own hands, assisted by one little laborer, who falls into a fit now and then, and he digs and delves from morn to eve in prodigious perspirations. Work always, as he says, but cover him with dust, mud, weeds, water, any stains you will, you never can cover the gentleman in Monsieur Loyal. A portly, upright, broad-shouldered, brown-faced man, whose soldierly bearing gives him the appearance of being taller than he is, look into the bright eye of Monsieur Loyal, standing before you in his working blouse and cap, not particularly well shaved, and, it may be, very earthy, and you shall discern in Monsieur Loyal a gentleman whose true politeness is ingrained, and confirmation of whose word by his bond you would blush to think of. Not without reason is Monsieur Loyal, when he tells that story, in his own vivacious way, of his travelling to Fulham, near London, to buy all these hundreds and hundreds of trees you now see upon the property, then a bare, bleak hill, and of his sojourning in Fulham three months, and of his jovial evenings with the market gardeners, and of the crowning banquet before his departure, when the market gardeners rose as one man, clinked their glasses all together, as the custom at Fulham is, and cried, Vive Loyal! Monsieur Loyal has an agreeable wife, but no family, and he loves to drill the children of his tenants, or run races with them, or do anything with them, or for them, that is good-natured. He is of a highly convivial temperament, and his hospitality is unbounded. Billet a soldier on him, and he is delighted. Five and thirty soldiers had Monsieur Loyal billeted on him this present summer, and they all got fat and red-faced in two days. It became a legend among the troops that whosoever got billeted on Monsieur Loyal rolled in clover, and so it fell out that the fortunate man who drew the billet, Monsieur Loyal de Vasseur, always leaped into the air, though in heavy marching order. Monsieur Loyal cannot bear to admit anything that might seem by any implication to disparage the military profession. We hinted to him once 
that we were conscious of a remote doubt arising in our mind whether a sou a day for pocket money tobacco stockings drink washing and social pleasures in general left a very large margin for a soldier's enjoyment pardon said monsieur loyal rather wincing it was not a fortune but a la bonne heure, it was better than it used to be what we asked him on another occasion were all those neighboring peasants each living with his family in one room and each having a soldier perhaps two billeted on him every other night required to provide for those soldiers faith said monsieur loyal reluctantly a bed monsieur and fire to cook with and a candle and they share their supper with those soldiers it is not possible that they could eat alone and what allowance do they get for this said we monsieur loyal drew himself up taller took a step back laid his hand upon his breast and said with majesty as speaking for himself and all france monsieur it is a contribution to the state it is never going to rain according to monsieur loyal when it is impossible to deny that it is now raining in torrents he says it will be fine charming magnificent to-morrow it is never hot on the property he contends likewise it is never cold the flowers he says come out delighting to grow there it is like paradise this morning it is like the garden of eden he is a little fanciful in his language smilingly observing of madame loyal when she is absent at vespers that she is gone to her salvation allez à son salut he has a great enjoyment of tobacco but nothing would induce him to continue smoking face to face with a lady his short black pipe immediately goes into his breast pocket scorches his blouse and nearly sets him on fire in the town council and on occasions of ceremony he appears in a full suit of black with a waistcoat of magnificent breadth across the chest and a shirt collar of fabulous proportions good monsieur loyal under blouse or waistcoat he carries one of the gentlest hearts that beat in a nation teeming with gentle people he has had losses and has been at his best under them not only the loss of his way by night in the fulham times when a bad subject of an englishman under pretence of seeing him home took him into all the night public houses drank arf on arf in every one at his expense and finally fled leaving him shipwrecked at cleefy way which we apprehend to be ratcliffe highway but heavier losses than that long ago a family of children and a mother were left in one of his houses without money a whole year monsieur loyal anything but as rich as we wish he had been had not the heart to say you must go so they stayed on and stayed on and paying tenants who would have come in couldn't come in and at last they managed to get helped home across the water and monsieur loyal 
kissed the whole group, and said, Adieu, my poor infants, and sat down in their deserted salon, and smoked his pipe of peace. The rent, Monsieur Loyal? Eh, well, the rent, Monsieur Loyal shakes his head. Le bon Dieu, says Monsieur Loyal presently, will recompense me. And he laughs and smokes his pipe of peace. May he smoke it on the property and not be recompensed these fifty years. There are public amusements in our French watering place, or it would not be French. They are very popular and very cheap. The sea bathing, which may rank as the most favored daylight entertainment, inasmuch as the French visitors bathe all day long and seldom appear to think of remaining less than an hour at a time in the water, is astoundingly cheap. Omnibuses convey you, if you please, from a convenient part of the town to the beach and back again. You have a clean and comfortable bathing machine, dress, linen, and all appliances, and the charge for the whole is half a franc or five pence. On the pier there is usually a guitar which seems presumptuously enough to set its tinkling against the deep hoarseness of the sea, and there is always some boy or woman who sings without any voice, little songs without any tune. The strain we have most frequently heard being an appeal to the sportsman, not to bag that choicest of game, the swallow. For bathing purposes, we have also a subscription establishment with an esplanade, where people lounge about with telescopes and seem to get a good deal of weariness for their money. And we have also an association of individual machine proprietors combined against this formidable rival. Monsieur Ferros, our own particular friend in the bathing line, is one of these. How he ever came by his name, we cannot imagine. He is as gentle and polite a man as Monsieur Loyal Duvasseur himself, immensely stout withal, and of a beaming aspect. Monsieur Ferros has saved so many people from drowning, and has been decorated with so many medals in consequence, that his stoutness seems a special dispensation of providence to enable him to wear them. If his girth were the girth of an ordinary man, he could never hang them on all at once. It is only on very great occasions that Monsieur Ferros displays his shining honors. At other times they lie by, with rolls of manuscript testifying to the causes of their presentation, in a huge glass case in the red sofa'd salon of his private residence on the beach, where Monsieur Ferros also keeps his family pictures, his portraits of himself as he appears both in bathing life and in private life, his little boots that rock by clockwork, and his other ornamental possessions. Then we have the commodious and gay theatre, or had, for it is burned down now, where the opera was always preceded by a vaudeville, in which, as usual, everybody, down to the little old man with the large hat and the little cane and tassel, who always played either my uncle or my papa, 
suddenly broke out of the dialogue into the mildest vocal snatches to the great perplexity of unaccustomed strangers from great britain who never could make out when they were singing and when they were talking and indeed it was pretty much the same but the caterers in the way of entertainment to whom we are most beholden are the society of well-doing who are active all the summer and give the proceeds of their good works to the poor some of the most agreeable fetes they contrive are announced as dedicated to the children and the taste with which they turn a small public enclosure into an elegant garden beautifully illuminated and the thorough-going heartiness and energy with which they personally direct the childish pleasures are supremely delightful for five pence a head we have on these occasions donkey races with english jokais and other rustic sports lotteries for toys roundabouts dancing on the grass to the music of an admirable band fire balloons and fireworks further almost every week all through the summer never mind now on what day of the week there is a fete in some adjoining village called in that part of the country a ducasse where the people really the people dance on the green turf in the open air round a little orchestra that seems itself to dance there is such an airy motion of flags and streamers all about it and we do not suppose that between the torrid zone and the north pole there are to be found male dancers with such astonishingly loose legs furnished with so many joints in wrong places utterly unknown to professor owen as those who here disport themselves sometimes the fete appertains to a particular trade you will see among the cheerful young women at the joint du casse of the milliners and tailors a wholesome knowledge of the art of making common and cheap things uncommon and pretty by good sense and good taste that is a practical lesson to any rank of society in a whole island we could mention the oddest feature of these agreeable scenes is the everlasting roundabout. We preserve an English word wherever we can as we are writing the English language. On the wooden horses of which machine, grown-up people of all ages are wound round and round with the utmost solemnity, while the proprietor's wife grinds an organ, capable of only one tune, in the center. As to the boarding-houses of our French watering-place, they are legion, and would require a distinct treatise. It is not without a sentiment of national pride that we believe them to contain more boars from the shores of Albion than all the clubs in London. As you walk timidly in their neighborhood, the very neckcloths and hats of your elderly compatriots cry to you from the stones of the streets, we are boars avoid us we have never overheard at street corners such lunatic scraps of political and social discussion as among these dear countrymen of ours they believe everything that is impossible and nothing that is true they carry rumors and ask questions and make corrections and improvements on one another 
staggering to the human intellect, and they are forever rushing into the English library, propounding such incomprehensible paradoxes to the fair mistress of that establishment, that we beg to recommend her to Her Majesty's gracious consideration as a fit object for a pension. The English form a considerable part of the population of our French watering place, and are deservedly addressed and respected in many ways. Some of the surface addresses to them are odd enough, as when a laundress puts a placard outside her house announcing her possession of that curious British instrument, a mingle, or when a tavern-keeper provides accommodation for the celebrated English game of Knockhamdon. But to us it is not the least pleasant feature of our French watering place that a long and constant fusion of the two great nations there has taught each to like the other, and to learn from the other, and to rise superior to the absurd prejudices that have lingered among the weak and ignorant in both countries equally. Drumming and trumpeting, of course, go on forever in our French watering place. Flag-flying is at a premium, too, but we cheerfully avow that we consider a flag a very pretty object, and that we take such outward signs of innocent liveliness to our heart of hearts. The people, in the town and in the country, are a busy people who work hard. They are sober, temperate, good-humored, light-hearted, and generally remarkable for their engaging manners. Few just men, not immoderately bilious, could see them in their recreations without very much respecting the character that is so easily, so harmlessly, and so simply pleased. End of Our French Watering Place Recording by L. D. Hamilton